Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 11, Genesis chapter 12. All right, this week we are going to get into Genesis 12. And I want to begin by reading just the first three verses this week. And then we're going to talk a little bit about covenants. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And I'm just going to start by reading the first three verses to you. I'll talk about that a little bit. Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now I'll tell you, that was a mouthful in about three verses. What we see here is that God, Adonai, which simply means Lord or Master, makes a covenant with Abraham, still called Avram at this moment. And this covenant occurs while Abraham, Avram, was still residing up in Haran, up here in Mesopotamia. And basically what occurs is that God tells Abraham to leave Haran and to go where God will guide him. And God says, by the way, your father and your father's other relatives are not welcome to go along. And I suspect what we see here is that since Terah, who was Abraham's father, apparently went part way from Ur to Haran and then decided against following God any further, God used somebody who would go the whole nine yards for him, Abraham. You know, partial obedience isn't a little obedience, it's disobedience. And here we see God again in his statement to Abraham regarding his family, dividing and electing and separating. Now what I would like to do now is to take a little time with this covenant to explain both what this covenant's about and to explain the general nature of covenants in Bible times. Now God gives Abraham an instruction and he follows it up with a promise. A promise that consists of several parts. Of course, the instruction is that Abraham should leave the area he is in, Haran, and go to a place that God will show him, and to separate himself from his father and brother and the rest of his family. God then issues a set of promises that consist of the following. First, God will make Abraham and his, and his descendants into a great nation. This means 
that Abraham and his descendants are going to become a people, a definite, identifiable, separate nation. One which up to that point didn't exist. Right? And if that's to happen, then Abraham and Sarai must have children. And their children must have children and lots of descendants after them to the point that sometime in the future there will be sufficient number of these descendants who remain identified with one another to be counted as a nation. Second, God would bless Abraham and give Abraham and Abraham himself would be a blessing. In other words, God is going to give Abraham his favor. Abraham is going to be treated as special by God and some wonderful things are going to happen to him that he doesn't deserve. But God's going to do it anyway. What God does for Abraham is going to benefit more than just Abraham. What Abraham does in obedience to God is going to itself be a blessing to others. Third, God will bless those who bless Abraham and God will curse those who curse Abraham. Man, I wish I had a flashing red light and a siren to announce this verse. I mean, this is not some set of idle words. This is not God being condescending to Abraham nor patting him on his little head like he would a child trying to make him feel good. This is a serious warning. But the warning is not to Abraham. The warning is to all the peoples of the world from that moment forward. God expects people to recognize that Abraham is God's man. And he is to be respected and honored. On the flip side, God will take it personally if anyone should decide to be an enemy of Abraham. That is, God will judge those that line up against Abraham. But let me take you one step further. Remember, in Bible language, God, of course, is not just referring to Abraham himself. He is speaking of Abraham's line. Even more specifically, of a special nation that is going to come from Abraham, his descendants. Now, who are these descendants that form that special nation? Well, we will soon see that this covenant nation, this covenant people, is Israel. Abraham would eventually have many children, out of which only one, however, was the one that would lead to Israel. So not all of Abraham's descendants have this special blessing and warning attached. I pointed out sometime earlier that God has already laid the pattern for this concept out before us. He divides, he elects, he separates. Abraham came from the line of Peleg, who was divided and elected away from the line of Shem, who was divided and elected away from the line of Noah, who was divided and elected away from Seth, who was divided and elected away from Adam. In time, as Abraham has sons, we will see one particular son divided, elected, and separated away from all the others. Okay. The result of this God process 
of dividing and selecting and electing is what we often hear called the line of promise. Okay. Typically, this line of promise is considered to start with Abraham, but the Bible shows us in, the rea in reality goes all the way back to Seth, son of Adam. Fourth, God is going to make the name of Abraham great. In other words, Abraham is going to be greatly rewarded, and his name is going to be lifted high among men. Now remember where it says name, God's going to make the name of Abraham great. We really ought to think reputation okay, in our modern Western culture way of speaking and thinking. Okay. God will make the reputation of Abraham great. Now, now, what is fascinating is that even in our time, 4,000 years after Abraham, more than half the population of this planet is represented by three great monotheistic religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, in which Abraham is the revered patriarch of every one of them. Fifth, God will use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. Now, what God is going to do through Abraham is not going to bless just Abraham, nor even just his descendants, nor even just that special nation that's going to come from this blessing eventually, Israel. This blessing brought about through Abraham's selection is going to benefit all mankind. Now, Let's take a look at what a covenant is. Of all the biblical principles, covenant is the one we need to understand best because it is through the process of covenant that God's set-apart people, Israel, were created. And through covenant that by trust in God, namely in Yeshua, we can be saved. Now Webster's Dictionary defines a covenant as a binding agreement, as an agreement among church members to defend and maintain its doctrines. It also describes a covenant as a formal contract. Well, without doubt, these definitions pretty well nail down the Western culture 21st century idea of just what a covenant is and what we as Christians generally picture in our minds when the word covenant is used. But Webster's misses the mark substantially when compared to what a covenant in Bible terms and Bible times meant and still means. That is what God means by a covenant. And first and foremost, it is that a covenant was a sacred thing. Now in Bible times, Covenants between men were used to sell land, to make alliances, to make war and peace, right? even to make provision for the using of a water well by someone other than its owner. A covenant could be made by mutual agreement in which both parties had obligations to fulfill, or just as often, it signified an obligation only upon one party and even could be imposed upon someone by a more powerful person or nation or by God himself in some cases. Now we tend to think of a covenant 
in terms of a promise or a contract and how its effect is dealt with within the framework of our judicial system. Therefore, we picture a covenant as, a, as, as human agreements written by human hands and enforced by human means. I mean, we all know that time or people or circumstances can cause oral promises as well as written ones to terminate, to change, or to simply become obsolete. Now, penalties for breaking a contract are usually small in our society and normally involve a monetary settlement. They happen every day. A court of law can invalidate or change a contract. Men and women break personal promises on a fairly consistent basis. Governments can form a constitution, their contract with the people, and then amend it, or even throw it all away and start all over again. I mean, people can mutually or unilaterally change their minds and simply dissolve or disavow a contract or a promise, like in divorce, with relatively little penalty. None of this is possible within the biblical definition of a covenant. Now, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit, B-R-I-T, or B-E-R-I-T, berit, which comes from the Hebrew word that they share with the Assyrian language that's, that is bara, B-A-R-A-H, which means to cut or to divide. And I'm going to show you the relevance of that meaning very shortly. Now, the Greek word used in the Bible for covenant is diatheke. And this Greek word misses the mark rather substantially as a translation of the word berit. Now, I've taught you on a number of occasions that language and culture come as a package. And that within any given culture, they have a number of traditions and ideas and basic concepts that are unique to their culture and therefore foreign to all others. Since that is the case, there are many uniquely Hebrew concepts, such as the concept embodied in the Hebrew word berit or shalom or even messiah right? that don't have parallels in other languages or cultures. Now, now think about that for a minute. Because unless you're a language expert, it isn't readily apparent to most of us that there are words in one language which don't directly correspond to a word in another language. That is, we can't just make a list of Hebrew words down one side and easily make a list right alongside of it of their equivalent English or Greek words. As a matter of fact, it takes approximately a third more English than Hebrew words to say the same thing. A Hebrew Bible is only about two-thirds of the number of pages of an English Bible. Okay. That should be a clue about translation difficulties right there. Let, let me illustrate this for you. As a for instance, Yom in Hebrew means day in English. 
It's the same concept. And both English and Hebrew have the common and straightforward concept of a 24-hour period of time, one full rotation of the earth. And they, they each have a word to concisely describe that concept. In Hebrew it is yom, in English it is day. No problem with that. But the word shalom in Hebrew contains an overall concept that doesn't exist in either Greek or English-speaking cultures. And since the concept of shalom doesn't exist in Greek or English cultures, naturally there is no Greek or English word for it. So the Bible translator tries for something close to it, or he uses a series of words to try to get the concept across to the reader. With, the, with our example of shalom, for instance, we often see the words peace and grace used in English to translate that single word, shalom. But peace and grace just scratch the surface of what that single word shalom means to the Hebrew mind. But more troublesome is what happens when a translator has no understanding of the culture behind the language he is translating. You don't need to be at all familiar with French culture to learn to speak French. Okay? You don't need to be familiar with Hebrew culture to learn Hebrew. The problem is, without uniting the understanding of the culture with the language, the translator will only understand what the word means in the context of his own cultural sense. And that is the main problem we have with Bible translations. Precious few translators have any depth of knowledge of ancient Hebrew cultures and concepts. And worse, often they have a built-in prejudice against the ancient Hebrews, and so it goes forward with a negative view. Now, many of us who have purchased small appliances or electronic widgets of some kind made in China often have found the accompanying instructions to sound odd or even pretty funny. I mean, I, I vividly recall being told in one manual that I was to tighten the screw carefully until it was happy. <laughs> Say what? I'm going to make the screw happy? All right. Of course, the idea was to tighten it until it was correct or appropriate. And in a dictionary, if you look at the definitions of happy and correct, eh, they're fairly similar. All right. But for Americans, happy is an emotion displayed by a living creature. It's not a technical term. All right. So the word seems right to the translator, but the concept is all fouled up. Right? We have that exact same problem in many places in the Bible. Right? So let's get back to adjusting our understanding of just what a biblical covenant actually is. Now partially because of the use of the, uh, of the Greek word diatiki in the New Testament, and also partially because the Hebrew concept of berit doesn't have a direct parallel to either Greek or English-speaking cultures, Christians have adopted the belief 
that what is being referred to is equivalent to the concept of a will, like in last will and testament. In fact, I have heard many sermons that seek to explain covenant in exactly those terms. Therefore, we have come to use the English word testament, as in New Testament and Old Testament, to describe the two halves of the Bible, like in last will and testament. And boy, is that concept off the mark. Okay? No modern credible Bible scholar should defend using the Greek word diatiki or its English equivalent testament as a proper translation of berit. So why do we continue to say Old Testament, New Testament instead of Old Covenant, New Covenant? Habit, tradition, and ignorance of just what a real biblical covenant is in the first place. Now one major difference between the typical Christian understanding of a covenant and what God means by that word is that a biblical covenant is a permanent thing unless it is conditional. Okay. We see both conditional and permanent covenants in the Bible, both kinds. A permanent covenant cannot be retracted. A conditional covenant can. Okay. Another difference is that the penalty for breaking a big biblical covenant was usually severe. Often it was death. But the overwhelming characteristic of a God-made biblical covenant as opposed to a covenant between men or even modern-day promises or contracts is that once God makes a covenant, it literally becomes a physical law of the universe. Like gravity or the speed of light or the laws of thermodynamics. In fact, the Hebrews themselves acknowledge this because berit, their word for covenant, is also used to indicate the laws of nature. Okay. When God makes a covenant with his creation, that covenant is woven into the very fabric of both space and time. It affects how the universe operates. Okay? And it also has an effect in the spiritual realm. Because the spiritual realm is the source of a God-made covenant. Now let me, get, let me give you a detailed example of this covenant principle. First, for instance, when God first made the universe, then man, we're told there was no death. The laws of the universe, we might call them the laws of nature, were such that everything that was created was to exist forever. But somewhere along the line, something changed. Now our time together this evening is such that I can't address the matter as completely as I'd like, and no matter what my thoughts are about it, they do contain some speculation. Telling, telling you right up front because the Bible doesn't directly answer all of our questions about creation and death and decay. Nonetheless, we are told 
that death entered the world when Adam and Eve fell from grace. Did that mean universal death? Death of everything. Death of stars and planets and moons, the sun, the earth itself. I don't think so. Okay? The, the Bible uses the term death as meaning the end of life. If there is no life, there can be no death because only living things die. Stars and moons and planets exist, but they're not life. The death that the Bible is talking about as regards the fall of man, in my opinion, is the death of living things. So if the fall of man didn't start the universe decaying, then what did? In my estimation, the thing that started the universe decaying is the very thing that Adam's fall was patterned after. The fall of Lucifer, who came to be called Satan. Now let me introduce you to the concept of patterns. This is going to be brief, and over time I'm going to add to it as, as we move along through the weeks. Now the common question we usually ask of any biblical event or law or instruction or principle or God's decision is, why? Why is almost always the wrong question to ask about God-ordained things? Why is a Greek way of thinking. You generally won't find answers to why in the Bible the way we've been taught to seek and discover why using the scientific method, which is a Greek way of thinking. Rather, God instructs us by giving us patterns. He describes and explains an event, and then later a similar event occurs, but it's patterned after the previous event. Later, another one will occur, and it follows the pattern of the previous two. The reason that the later event occurred the way it did was that it conformed to the pattern of the earlier event. God's way of explanation is by means of exposing patterns, not by explaining why. So with the principle of patterns in mind, we know that Satan's fall occurred sometime before Adam's fall, obviously, because Satan was already exiled to planet Earth by the time Adam had arrived. Satan's crime, pride and rebellion against God, occurred in the spiritual realm, didn't it? It said it was in heaven, not the physical realm. But all biblical indications are that until Lucifer, called Satan, sinned against God, there was no evil in the spiritual realm. Yet like so many spiritual matters, this one also had its effects on the physical world as well. Now, I believe that Satan's fall initiated God changing the way his universe operated. After the fall, everything that existed would now start to deteriorate and die. No exceptions. 
Adam and Eve arrived onto a planet in a universe that was already decaying due to Satan's introduction of sin. He brought that with him when he was kicked out of heaven and sent to planet Earth. Okay. Where he lived in exile with his band of fallen angels. Then sometime later when Adam and Eve arrived, Satan infected them with sin, which now brought death to living creatures. So now the whole universe, except for the spiritual realm, was decaying. Now it's my contention that time began. Time. Right then. Right at the moment of Satan's rebellion. Now, as I told you back in lesson six, time. I don't know if I'm missing one or what. Time is a measurement of decay. That's what it really is. If there is no decay of things, there is no time. We often hear scientists speak of how our universe is aging. What they mean is it's deteriorating. It's winding down. Everything in the universe is aging. On Earth, rain and wind erode mountain chains and seashores. The sun has a finite amount of fuel. It's going to run out. Okay. Every physical thing is slowly but surely dissolving back towards its basic elemental makeup. And spiritually, things also changed. Evil was unleashed. And it had to be dealt with because evil pollutes perfection. Sin defiles God's personal holiness. I'd like to read you quickly a verse that doesn't necessarily prove my point about Satan and very possibly his sinning in heaven being the time the deterioration began. But just listen to this in uh, the book of John, chapter 8, verse 44. This is Jesus talking. You belong to your father Satan. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Okay? From the start, he, Satan, was a murderer. And he never stood by the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is speaking in character because he is a liar. Indeed, the inventor of the lie. I want to point out to you that if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it says from the start. Most other Bibles will say from the beginning. And it's kind of interesting because the Greek word used there for start or beginning is RK. And in the Greek Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Bible, it is the exact same word used as the first words of the Bible in the beginning. Okay. So I think that the clue here is that Satan was created right near the beginning, right? going way back. So he could have been in existence for billions of years. All right? Before the earth was formed, we don't know. 
So as a result of all this, a savior had to be prepared to save man from complete annihilation. The abyss had to be ready to imprison the leader of evil, Satan, at the appropriate time. Angels would eventually have to become warriors. Because sin had entered the world, death entered the world. First the fall of Satan and the decay of inanimate objects, then the fall of man and the decay of living creatures. Prior to that, there would have been no need for a line of promise that we see starting with Abraham. For an, immac for an immaculate conception, no for a, nor for a horrendous cruc crucifixion. We today would not even be preparing for a rapture while warning the unbelieving of Armageddon if it wasn't for this. Here's another example that is an analogy of the effects of covenant. We all understand the effects of gravity, don't we? Okay, Even if we really don't know how it works. i got news for you. The scientists don't know either. What would happen if someday God deleted gravity as a physical law of the universe? Fortunately, at least until the new heaven and earth are created, gravity is a permanent law of nature. It has no conditions. It has no time limit that we're aware of. Well, gravity is the physical phenomenon that causes the moon to revolve around the earth and the earth around the sun. Our seasons, our weather, temperatures all stay within a certain range to afford life to survive because of that. And photosynthesis that is the basis of plant life depends on our connection and precise relation to the sun. Without gravity, that connection gets broken. Okay. We stay stuck to the earth instead of floating away because of gravity. When we drop a glass, it falls to the ground every time. What if God simply decided one day there shall be no more gravity? Well, a lot would change. A chain reaction throughout the universe of monumental proportions. The way the universe operates in relation to all of its parts would be entirely different. What I'm getting at is that death and gravity are essentially covenants. Okay? Universal laws upon which most other aspects of nature and heaven depend. Change one and many others are affected. God made every one of the universal laws of spiritual and physical nature and they all work together. None of them were accidental. So when God added decay when none had existed and then death to the equation, he changed the physical law of nature. And this change also had its spiritual counterpart. Everything about the universe was changed to adapt to this new reality, spiritually and physically. When God makes a covenant, any covenant, it's not like you or me promising to make payments on a car loan. Nor is it like human marriage vows. Some parts, if not all, of the vast body of spiritual and physical laws of the universe are affected 
when God makes a covenant. And please understand me. This is not allegory, nor illustration, nor emotion, nor exaggeration. When God makes a covenant, the spiritual and physical universe is never again the same. Now, if God is going to communicate with man, it has to be in terms men can understand. So it seems that God created a kind of covenant system, right? a, a visible, physical, tangible covenant protocol, if you would, by which a man could recognize and understand when God was creating a covenant and what its terms were and as much as a human could understand its impact. And mankind adopted a similar pattern for making agreements among ourselves. Now, of course, in the Bible, we see a lot of covenants made between humans. And we see covenants made by God, and as would be expected, they look an awful lot alike in their format. Now, the oldest, most primitive way of creating a covenant was called cutting a covenant. Hebrew berit literally means cutting or dividing. The earliest covenant procedure was that a representative of each side of a proposed covenant would literally cut their arms all right, with a knife and then holding the cuts together signify mixing the blood. Or in some cultures, blood was actually sucked from each other's wounds and ingested by the opposing party. Okay. Solemn oaths were sworn, invoking the name of a god that each participant worshipped because a covenant was sacred. In all play cases, blood and a god was at the center of a covenant ceremony. Now, in time, a different rite appeared, which involved cutting animals instead of each other. All right? And generally, this cutting meant not just slashing an animal to draw blood, but literally cutting it up and dividing it all right, either into halves or into several pieces. And the pieces would be laid on the ground, organized into two groups, and the participants would then walk through the center between the two all right, while swearing an oath in the name of their God. Okay. Now, blood was an integral part of covenant making because covenants were deemed to be a life fellowship and because life was in the blood. I mean, understand what that means. The covenant, even among men, was lifelong. And the participants considered themselves to have been joined together almost as one flesh under whatever terms that covenant demanded. Now, hundreds of years before Abraham was born, God told Adam that life was in the blood. Right? And mankind had not forgotten it. And the countless murders that had occurred by now and with the slaughtering and eating of animals and normal practice, it was self-evident that blood was central to life. Since blood was involved, it was understood that a covenant was a very serious matter. The usual penalty for breaking a covenant was death. Now, salt, together with bread, was usually eaten as the final event of a covenant ceremony. The participants eating a meal together upon completion of the covenant was a way of signifying that a new family-type relationship had been formed. 
Okay. Salt became so important to the transaction that the making of a covenant was sometimes referred to as a covenant of salt. Okay. In fact, in some cultures, the act of simply exchanging salt was at times enough to conclude a covenant over an everyday matter without blood or all the other rituals. We find this idea of the covenant of salt mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New. Now, since salt was the final step of the covenant-making process, it kind of sealed the deal, so to speak. Salt was considered as symbolic of peace. When the salt was partaken of, the covenant covenanting process was completed and similar to our to, to like us today, what that meant was it was it was like us applying our signatures to a legal document and then shaking hands. It was over. Now after the arrival of Moses, his receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai in the institution of the sacrificial system, God instructed the Levite priests to always add salt to the sacrifices. I mentioned earlier that when God made a covenant, it was forever. And the Israelites well understood the awesome heaven and earth changing device that a covenant from God was. Since covenants were to be sealed with salt, the God-ordained practice of sprinkling salt on the sacrifices was to remind Israel that the covenants between God and Israel were everlasting. Okay? And that the covenants had made peace between God and Israel. Now, as we move along through our study of Torah, we're going to come across some of these covenant ceremonies and procedures, and I'll point them out to you. Um, it's typically only small elements of these ceremonies are included. And sometimes they can be hard to recognize. But I also want to mention that often in the New Testament we see references to salt, don't we? Okay. Now, I hope you see now that these references to salt are all about the crucial aspects of covenant making and sacrificial procedure. It's not about cooking. Okay. For example, in Mark 9.50, Jesus says some strange words. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And Christ also tells us you are the salt of the earth. And Paul says, let your speech be gracious, always seasoned with salt. Well, they knew exactly what they were saying to each other. Here salt is being recalled as the final element of a covenant or a sacrifice so it is symbolic of peace and purity. Okay? In fact, by Jesus' day, when someone used the term covenant of salt, it indicated a holy, enduring covenant. And the covenant of salt also came to mean the specific covenant God made with Abraham. So whenever we see the use of the word salt in the scriptures, Old Testament or New, Understand that in the mind of the Hebrew author, something of great holiness in relation to a covenant or a sacrifice was being referred to. Now, armed with that understanding of covenants, let's go back to the terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Understanding that this was not a conditional covenant, this was the permanent kind. And by definition, a covenant is forever. 
Now, in the first three verses of chapter 12, we see God telling Abraham that he would become a great nation, that Abraham would be blessed and himself would be a blessing and that Abraham's name would be great and that Abraham would bless all the families of the earth and perhaps the most important aspect of this covenant in our time and day that God will bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse him. Now these promises are not idle nor obsolete. Okay? These promises given in the form of a covenant became a law of the spiritual and physical universe. An unchangeable fact of life the instant God pronounced it. Now, for mankind to ignore this is utmost folly. I mean, to fight against it leads to destruction because the entire operation of the universe has been finely tuned to achieve the terms of this permanent covenant. Now, Israel today is primarily the Jews. Okay? And they are the descendants of that unbreakable covenant handed down through Isaac. Then on to Jacob, who had his name changed by God to Israel. Then to his sons, the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, although there were other sons of Abraham, which were many, the Bible only addresses one in particular other than Isaac. Who is that other one? Ishmael. Now, an important division took place that we will investigate in the coming weeks. The covenant line of promise. That is, which of Abraham's sons would inherit all the promises contained within the covenant God made with Abraham? Okay, and specifically and explicitly, it went to Isaac. From Isaac it went to Jacob called Israel. So everything that was originally given to Abraham was handed down to Israel. Now you know, we can and should be very fair-minded in the matters we see happening in the Middle East, particularly as concerns Israel and the proposed Palestinian state. But the bottom line is, our support must be of Israel. Today that covenant says, I will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. That's just a biblical fact. It's not got nothing to do with politics. Those who stand with Israel will be blessed and favored by God, and those who oppose Israel will be lightly regarded by God and will be judged for their disobedience. Do you stand with Israel? Yeah. Do you pray for Israel? Do you understand that the land belongs to Israel? Not the Palestinians nor anybody else. I mean, do you support Israel tangibly? Or would you rather be even-handed? Take a little of what God promised to Israel and let's give it to the Palestinians for the sake of world peace. For the sake of of your view of what's fair. A view that is exactly the opposite of God's clearly stated mandate. Supporting Israel, by the way, does not mean to agree with everything they do. They're just people. And sadly, currently, 
many, if not most today living there, are pagan. So they're not walking with God, which leads to terrible decisions. Supporting Israel does not mean, and hear me on this, does not mean worshipping the state of Israel. It does not mean worshipping the Jewish people, nor declaring them above reproach. Rather, it means to come alongside of them, help them, love them, show respect, encourage them to do right, encourage them to return to Yahweh, and to remind them that those promises of God entitle them to that land and to retain their title as God's chosen people. I think we'll quit here for tonight.